But um, Daniel 4 um, is Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation. King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I had a dream and it frightened me while in my bed. The images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. When the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and divin diviners, diviners came in, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Finally, Daniel, named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and a spirit of the holy gods is in him, came before me. I told him the dream. Belteshazzar, head of the magicians, because I know that you have the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you, Explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. In the visions of my mind, as I was lying in bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. As I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the visions of my mind a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. The word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because none of the wise men in my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me. But you can, because you have a spirit of the holy gods. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was stunned for a moment, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar, or Daniel, answered, My Lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. The tree you saw, which, drew large and strong, which grew large and strong, whose top reached to the sky and was visible to the whole earth, and whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals lived, and in its branches the birds of the sky lived. That tree is you, your majesty, for you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. The king saw a watcher, 
the Holy One, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share food with the wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king exclaimed, is this not Babylon, the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. And you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and gloried, glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens, because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is the word of the Lord. Um, my name's Frank, if I haven't met you before, um, seeing some new faces out there, which is awesome, uh, welcome. Um, I'm one of the elders here, um, and I get the privilege, privilege of um, opening up the scriptures uh, for us today. Uh, and it's interesting that the, um, the passage is on pride and humility today, because honestly, uh, I don't really feel like I've kind of uh, arrived at this moment with like uh, a, a huge amount of confidence in myself. <laughs> So I'm just going to pray quickly, um, both for myself and for us as we dive into this passage. Lord, thank you that you don't ask us to be um, strong in, our, in ourselves. Thank you that you don't ask us to be wise in ourselves. Thank you that you don't ask us um, to have all the answers, God. 
Thank you that you ask us to be humble and to come before you and ask for strength. So I, I, I do that this morning, Lord, just come before you ask, asking for strength and um, humbly asking that you would give me words to say today um, into this amazing passage. Thank you so much for this church, God. Thank you for everyone gathered. And I really pray that you do a great work in all of us today um, as we hear the gospel. Amen. Now, I wonder if you've ever been humbled by something. Um, physically speaking, when I think about being humbled, I go back to when I was 19 years old, and I entered the Rome Marathon for a charity that I was involved with. And I was a very, very cocky 19-year-old kid, and I thought, you know, I play a lot of sport, I do a lot of cardio, I, I'll be fine, I'll just do a few runs, and I'll be all right. So I think I did four runs in, in total, that was my training. And I arrived on the start line, and it's underneath the Colosseum, it's just an incredible, you know, if you're going to run a race anywhere, like, run it in Rome, right? The gun goes off, and I, like, just was, like, filled with adrenaline for, for this race. So my first five miles, I just didn't feel any pain whatsoever, I was absolutely flying. I was, like, high-fiving strangers, I was, like, jumping up and, like, hitting road signs, I was, like, running backwards, all sorts. Just, just, I was on, like, cloud nine. Um... So I was, you know, I was doing pretty well for the first half. I was kind of on for about three hours and 30 minutes, which, you know, I was pretty happy about that. But then the course went out of the city, um, and it was quite a hot day. And it went up this, like, really long, like, grinding hill for, like, two or three miles, just a steady incline. And towards the top of that hill, I felt like someone had just, like, shot me in the back of the legs. Both my calves just cramped up, like, literally... Um, if you've ever had that, um, that feeling of cramp, it's, it's totally horrible. Just muscles just like spasm and loads of pain. And, you know, so I've gone down onto the side, like grabbed one of the barriers, and I'm trying to stretch it out. But I just couldn't shake off this cramp. So I had to basically walk the last seven miles. And obviously, like, seven miles of walking, you know, it's, that, that's like something at the best of times. But seven miles of walking with cramp in both calves, like, that was an extremely hard seven miles. When I got to the end... I literally like, burst into tears. <laughs> I walked over the line and literally just started crying because I was just so relieved that it was all over. So I was humbled that day. I got a far more realistic sense of my own ability. And I felt like I'd been knocked you know, down a peg or two as I boarded my flight um, back home to the UK. So as we look at Daniel 4 today, we're going to see the humbling of a king. And not just any old king, Nebuchadnezzar who was the most powerful man in the known world at that time. And Daniel 4 is a, is a fascinating chapter in the book of Daniel because it's a written testimony by Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now, I don't know if you were here on Easter Day, um, but Adrian, is Adrian here? Yes. Adrian got up and he read out his testimony, his story of like what God had done in his life. And it was an absolutely incredible thing to hear. I was you know, massively encouraged by it. And that's pretty much what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here. Nebuchadnezzar's writing out the things that he learned about Yahweh, about Daniel's God, and about our God. So we get the, the privilege of you know, this, ancient, um, this ancient king's testimony, and we're going to look through it for the rest of our time um, here just now. And we're going to look at three things that Nebuchadnezzar learned about God. The first thing is that God rules everything. The second thing is that God humbles the proud. And the third thing is that God lifts up the humble. So let's look at the first one then. God rules everything. 
So before um, Nebuchadnezzar learned this, he was a polytheist, which meant that he would have had lots of different gods that he worshipped. So if you look at verse 8 of chapter, chapter 4, we read that Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's Babylonian name, was given to him after the name of Nebuchadnezzar's god. And the name Belteshazzar literally means, may Bel protect him. Now, Bel was the patron god of the city of Babylon. But he was only one of 15 major deities and over 100 minor deities that Nebuchadnezzar would have worshipped, such as Ishtar, the goddess of love, Tammuz, the, goddess, the, the god of food, and Asher, the god of the wind. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar comes face to face with Daniel's God, and with our God, Yahweh, or the Lord, in our Bibles. And he watches in amazement as the Lord saves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the burning fiery furnace, which leads Nebuchadnezzar to say this in chapter 3, verse 29. There is no other God who can rescue like this. So Nebuchadnezzar was on a journey. He'd seen something of the power of the Lord, something undeniably powerful and miraculous, and yet he was still a polytheist, worshipping his various gods. Along with his worship of other gods, some commentators say that Nebuchadnezzar also ascribed godlike status to himself. In Daniel chapter 1, we read of a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about a large statue of gold, and the head was gold, and Daniel informed the king that the golden head represented Nebuchadnezzar himself and his mighty empire. Then, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds a 90-foot-tall statue made of gold that he had the people worship. And some commentators see this golden statue as a representation of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so when the people bowed down to worship the statue, they were really bowing down to worship Nebuchadnezzar himself. And this theory is supported by Nebuchadnezzar's words to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, verse 15 of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar says, Who is the God who can rescue you from my power? So in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, it would have taken the power of a God to save these three men from his hands, which perhaps suggests that he had eleva elevated himself to godlike status. So in light of this, God knew that it would take more than just a miraculous saving of three men in a fire to turn Nebuchadnezzar from his false worship to truly worship Yahweh alone. So God brings this disturbing dream and its fulfillment upon Nebuchadnezzar so that Nebuchadnezzar will hear the message of verses 17, 25, and 32, which all say the same thing. It says this, Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So this is the message that God wants Nebuchadnezzar to hear loud and clear. There is a sovereign God. There is one God over everything. There is one God who made the heavens and the earth. And he is the only God who is worthy of Nebuchadnezzar's worship. What did this realization mean for Nebuchadnezzar? Well, I think two things at least. Firstly, God was asking Nebuchadnezzar to turn away from all other gods. Because God had revealed himself as the only God worthy of worship, he shouldn't continue worshipping his pantheon of gods. He should no longer worship 
the God of love or the God of food or the God of the winds, because the Most High God created all these things. And so he alone is worthy of all praise and worship. God was showing Nebuchadnezzar the truth of Exodus 20, verse 3, which is the first commandment, do not have any gods besides me. The second implication of the truth that God rules everything for Nebuchadnezzar would have been a mental shift in the way that he ruled. You see, Nebuchadnezzar used to rule Babylon like it was his own. He thought, I'm the boss of Babylon. I'm top dog. I'm the king. I've risen, I've risen to this position. I'm the, most, I'm the most powerful man in the world, so I can do whatever I want. If we take a look at Daniel's warning in chapter 4, verse 27, we see that the manner in which Nebuchadnezzar ruled had brought misery to his people and had opened the door to many sins which were now catching up to him. But then we see right at the end of chapter 4, in verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens, because all his works are true and just. So Nebuchadnezzar saw something of the goodness and justice of God and the way God rules. So he could no longer oppress people, no longer rule unjustly. He was compelled to rule in a godly way because he had come to the realization that everything he had was a gift from God. Nebuchadnezzar was only in the position he was in because God saw fit to graciously give it to him. He was the king only because the king of kings had granted it to him. And this realization would have had a radical impact on the way he would have ruled from this point on. So as we reflect on what Nebuchadnezzar learned about how God ultimately rules over everything, let's consider how that truth applies to us. Firstly, I want you to consider that you have been given a Babylon. It might not look as impressive, maybe, as that ancient kingdom, but God's given you gifts, skills, talents, maybe a family, maybe you've got your own business. He's given each of us a sphere of influence with which to rule over. And the question is, do we see these things as graciously given to us by God, to steward carefully and wisely? Or do we either consciously or unconsciously, view them as our own. It's, uh, I think this is a really great saying that says, if you want a window into someone's heart, just take a look at their bank, bank account and take a look at their calendar. You see, what we do with our time and money, it really does reveal what we care the most about. And it, it will reveal whether we view our money and our time as our own, to be used how we see fit, or whether we view them as gracious gifts from God to be faithfully and carefully stewarded. For most of my adult life, I've been money poor but time rich because I uh, worked part-time for many, many years and so had a lot of hours in my, uh, in my week to fill up. And a few years ago, I really felt God gently challenging me to give more of my time away to my local church and see my time as something that I could use to serve others rather than overly investing in my own enjoyment and self-actualization. Now, let me say at this point that I'm not advocating burning ourselves out and never taking any time for ourselves to rest and recharge. 
I was in a phase of life where I had more than the average person in terms of time. So for me, it was right that I spend more time than the average person volunteering in my local church family. You might be the opposite. You might have a job that's extremely demanding on your time, and you might have very little left over at the end of the week. Most jobs like this, though sadly not all of them, come with a salary that matches your time sacrifice. And perhaps, though tight on time, God has blessed you with money to give and be generous with. If that is you, then I'd encourage you to think of your money as simply on loan from God. Though you worked for it, God gave you the gifts and skills you used while earning it. So he is still the source of your wealth. If you've been to any of our recent family gatherings, you'll know that we're heading into a season as a church where money's going to be tight. And this could be a great time for you to take some time in prayer, either on your own or maybe with your spouse if you're married. And ask God if he has given you the grace to lean in financially to the life of the Hallows Church. Maybe like me, in your younger years, you're lean financially, but you've got a lot of free time. And if that is, is you, I would encourage you to bring your calendar before the Lord and ask him for wisdom and faith as to how to invest your time. We have a real need right now in our church for more missional communities, which are our small groups here. Maybe you've got time in your week to be part of a leadership team which starts a new MC. Or maybe God is leading you to serve on one of our other ministry teams here, like the Justice and Mercy ministry team or our kids' work team. Whether it's our time or our money or something else, God has given us our own many kingdoms to rule over. It's part of the uniqueness of being human that we get to rule over creation, Genesis 1:26. The question is the same one that Nebuchadnezzar faced. Do we rule for ourselves or do we rule for God, knowing that he is the one who has graciously given us our spheres of influence in the first place? So we've considered the first lesson Nebuchadnezzar learned. The second lesson is that God humbles the proud. Look with me at verse 28, and we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar's pride is ultimately his downfall. Come with me on your minds. Nebuchadnezzar's there. He's on the roof of his palace. And he looks out over all of Babylon. And he sees the ornate temples that are gleaming in the sunlight. He sees the hanging gardens of Babylon, which were one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. He would see the ziggurat, which was this giant pyramid-like structure, which was said to pierce the heavens. And he would see the outer wall of the city, which was so big and so broad that two four-horse chariots could pass each other on top of the wall. And he, as he looked out over the glory of the city, he says these fateful words, Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built to be a royal residence for my vast power and for my majestic glory? See, the reason why the statement is so offensive to God's is that Nebuchadnezzar credits himself for the splendor of Babylon. And he wants everyone to give him the glory for building it. In Isaiah 43, verse 7, God says, I created you for my glory. God created you and me for his glory. And he created the earth with all its beauty so that we would look around and say, how immense is God's? 
We as God's creatures are supposed to give all the glory to God, our creator. But Nebuchadnezzar, he takes all the glory for himself. The taking of glory for oneself is at the heart of pride. In Nebuchadnezzar, we have a window into the fundamental problem of the human heart. In C.S. Lewis' famous chapter on pride, in his book, Mere Christianity, he writes, Pride is the essential vice and utmost evil. Anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It is through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the, is, it is the completely anti-God state of mind. He goes on. Pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. Pride was what drove a wedge between God and the first human beings. Look at Genesis 3. Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil because they think that in doing so, they will become like God. So they eat the fruit because they don't want, they don't want to be under God's rule, any, rule anymore. They want to rule their own lives. Pride drives a wedge between people as well. Again, C.S. Lewis says it brilliantly. Pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only of having more than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Pride is a huge problem that everyone faces in life. And the thing is, it's so easy to spot it in other people and so hard to see it in ourselves. You might be sitting here and thinking, ah, I don't know, Frank, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm that proud. And if I am proud, well, I'm certainly not as proud as that person sat over there. You see, pride is a secret and insidious sin. It lurks under the surface, and the devil loves it when we don't realize how proud we really are. A good way to reveal to ourselves how proud we truly are is to ask questions such as these. Number one, in conversations, do you talk more than you listen? Number two, can you accept help from people or do you always do everything yourself? Number three, how do you react when other people get the credit for the good work that you have done? Number four, do you catch yourselves comparing yourselves to others and feeling either inadequate around those you perceive as better than you or looking down on those who you see is worse than you. And fifthly, are you striving for your own glory or for God's glory? See, pride is lurking in the hearts of all of us if we're really, really honest. Given that pride's been on my mind all week leading up to this, honestly, I've been shocked at how many times I've had to check myself as I notice pride welling up within me. And that's simply the pride that I can detect. 
What about all the ways in which we are proud but we can't see it? That's when we need the help of the Holy Spirit, the great helper, to show us where we are proud. Our missional communities are also a fantastic place to have our pride revealed to us as we seek to share our lives with with one another with transparency and vulnerability. Let's commit to opening ourselves up both to God and to each other so that we can bring our pride before God in prayer, asking him to change our hearts. Back to Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar's pride was so great that it needed a serious intervention from God. God brought upon Nebuchadnezzar seven years of life as if he were an animal, eating grass and being drenched with rain every day. (laughs) We complain about being drenched here in Seattle, right? But can you imagine being rained on every day for seven years? (laughs) Man, poor Nebuchadnezzar, eh? Um, There should be a painting coming up on the screen. This is a painting by William Blake, who depicts Nebuchadnezzar in this horrible animal-like state. Some say it was boanthropy, which is a rare mental condition, where the sufferer believes themselves to be a cow or an ox and acts like one. Others suggest lycanthropy, which is another rare condition where the sufferer acts like a wolf. Whatever it was, it was undoubtedly a very difficult seven years for Nebuchadnezzar. But it's really important that we realize that God loves Nebuchadnezzar. He really does. He absolutely loves this king. And he took no pleasure in this suffering. We, we read in uh, chapter 4, verse 28, that God gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent after Daniel's initial warning. So God gave him a whole year to turn away from his sin, his injustice, and his pride. But when God saw that he wasn't going to humble himself, he saw that the only thing he could do was was to bring about this humbling on Nebuchadnezzar, but with a plan to then exalt him. And this leads us to the final lesson of Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar learned, sorry. He learned that God lifts up the humble. We see in verse 34 that at the end of the seven years, Nebuchadnezzar looks up to heaven and his sanity is restored and he gives honor and glory to God, saying in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of the heavens, because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. See, Nebuchadnezzar had learned this lesson the hard way, as God had assigned seven years of his life to that of an animal, which incidentally is what sin does to us all if we let it go unchecked. Sin degrades us, makes us less and less like the image bearers of God we were created to be, until we are no longer recognizable as sons and daughters of God, but the same as wild animals. Make no mistake, Nebuchadnezzar received a great humbling at the hands of Almighty God. But at the end of it all, he was no longer a proud man. He was a humble man before God. And the end of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony ends on such a high note, doesn't it? In verse 36, we read that God takes him and puts him back in power again. And he gives him more than he ever had before. And out of that humble state, God exalted him to an even higher place than before. See, 
being truly humble doesn't mean that we can't excel at things. It doesn't mean that we can't be at the top of our industry or at the top of our game. It's all about who we ascribe the glory to. Being humble doesn't mean that we can't excel. And see, this pattern of being humbled and then exalted, this is the gospel pattern. When God humbles, there's always hope that God can also exalt. God's heart is for people to be restored to right thinking about themselves and about him so that he can exalt us. Seven years as a wild animal was what God in his wisdom saw as a solution to Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Now this is of course an extreme example, right? And we shouldn't expect God to send us out into the Olympic mountains to live you know, as a wild animal for seven years to deal with our pride. However, I will say at this point that God sometimes sees fit to use mental health conditions to humble us and bring us closer to himself. I felt able to say this because I'm a person who knows what it's like, what it's like, <clears throat> sorry, what it's like to be brought low by mental health challenges. Many of you will know that I have type 1 bipolar disorder, which was diagnosed in November 2014. And a few years before this, I thought that I was going to be a church leader and a preacher. And I was very confident in myself and in my abilities that I'd honed through years of training and practice. But then I began to suffer with bouts of depression, which made it impossible for me to speak publicly. And twice, I had to stop midway through talks to young people and just walk off stage. Not only that, but I then launched into mania, which was characterized by illusions of grandeur, hyper-irritability, erratic and dangerous behavior, and vigilantism. When I got diagnosed, I felt both deep relief, but also deep sadness at the same time. And I've spent most of the last 10 years of my life coming to terms with this diagnosis and all that I've lost as a result. I've been on a journey of recovery with God through the help of medication, group and individual counseling, and through the unwavering support of my wife, friends, and my biological and church family. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I can relate in a small way to the arc of Nebuchadnezzar's story. In my early 20s, I felt like I had what it took to be a church leader and a, and a preacher. Amazing then that it took a decade for God to get me to a place where I could step into church leadership with a humble heart, knowing that I absolutely do not have what it takes, but, but that if I rely on him, he can empower me to serve him. I can see the kindness in what God did to Nebuchadnezzar. God saved him from himself, just like he saved me from myself. I can't imagine what damage would have been done to me, my wife, and to God's church if I had gone into church ministry with undiagnosed bipolar disorder. It would have been a complete train wreck. God saved me from that. See, humility is a precious gift from a loving God that some people gain through the struggles of a mental health condition. So Nebuchadnezzar's testimony teaches us 
that God can use mental health conditions to humble people in some cases. But what about everybody else? Well, God has made a way for every single human being to be freed from toxic pride and brought into blessed humility in the ultimate story of humbling and exaltation. The humbling and exaltation of King Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 11 sums up Jesus' story perfectly. It says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by, obe- by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus both humbles us and exalts us. It humbles us because we see that we were that sinful, that needy, that desperate, so lacking in anything good in and of ourselves, that it took the humiliation and death of the one and only Son of Almighty God to save us from our pride. When Jesus came to earth, Isaiah 53 verse 2 tells us that he had no desirable beauty. He left all of his beauty and status behind and came to earth where he was spat at, mocked, beaten, and nailed to a cross next to two criminals. Jesus couldn't have been humbled any more than this. Just consider this for a moment. The king of glory subjected himself to a slave's death for you and I. When we see how far he was willing to go for us, it humbles us because we can't help but see how desperate our situation must have been for this to be the only solution. Do you think, do you think God would have done it this way if there was any other solution? He's giving up his one and only son. This was the only solution. The cross humbles us because of the necessity of Jesus' death. And that reveals how far we have fallen. But praise God, (laughs) Jesus' death wasn't the end. Three days later, God raised Jesus to new life. And he placed him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that we just read out in Philippians 2. He is the matchless one. The one to whom every knee will bow in his exalted glory. If we come to the cross on our knees and say, Lord, I see how badly I need to be forgiven. Please forgive me. Then he will raise us from our knees and seat us in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2 verse 6. He'll take us from the ash, the ash heap and he'll raise us to the stars. Tim Keller puts it so beautifully when he says this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe 
Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope. When we truly get the gospel, when we truly see how far God went for us and how much he humbled himself, it will melt our hearts and lead to true humility. When we are truly humble, it really will affect every, every area of our lives. Let me give you some examples of this, of how true gospel humility will look in day-to-day life. Firstly, when we're truly humble, we'll use our gifts for God's glory. So think about what you're good at. Think about the things that God's given to you. True humility says, thank you so much for the gifts that you've given me. I don't deserve these gifts. I haven't done anything special to earn these gifts. They're all freely given to me by you. And I want to use them for your glory. I want people to see the way that I live and look to you and give you the glory. Secondly, we don't compare ourselves to others. You see, as soon as we compare ourselves to others and start looking down on others, we've slipped back into pride. Remember, pride is competitive. It's always trying to outdo the next person. It's really important that we realize that humility isn't the opposite of this. Meaning, we don't go around saying, woe is me, I'm terrible, everyone else is better than me, I'm a failure. Because that way of thinking is equally self-centered. It's self-centered self-loathing. You're still, you're still comparing yourself to others. You're saying, I look bad in comparison to that person. I'm so much worse than, than so-and-so. But if you're truly humble, you don't think less about yourself. You think about yourself less. A friend of mine called Steve once met his hero in the faith, an English preacher and pastor, the late John Stott. Some of you may have heard of him. My friend Steve chatted to him for two hours. And when I asked him what it was like, he said, Frank, for the entirety of that two hours, all he did was ask me questions. He made me feel like I was the most important person on earth. I was his primary focus. He didn't talk about himself, even though he's preached sermons that have impacted millions and written some of the most influential books of the last 100 years. No, all of his energy and attention was directed towards me. You see, that's true gospel humility. John Stott wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking, how can I best serve this young pastor in front of me? How can I build him up and point him to Christ? Thirdly, gospel humility means we can encourage people when they succeed and we can also support those who fail. Sometimes, when I see someone being celebrated for the good that they've done, part of me is slightly disappointed and it's, that's really embarrassing for me to say. Because it might mean that they look better than me. And what an awful and ugly thing to detect in myself. But there it is. And when people fail, sometimes the voice in my head says, this is great, because that gives me a chance to look better than them. The media do this all the time, right? As soon as someone fails, they're so quick to jump on the opportunity to tear them down and point out all their failings. 
But if we're truly humble, when someone triumphs, we can get alongside them and encourage them in what they're doing. In fact, the spiritual gift of encouragement is impossible to exercise if you're proud. It takes a humble heart to seek others out when they do something really well and tell them about it. And here's the thing. That person can only do the good thing that they've done because of God's gracious kindness towards them. Just in the same way that everything good that we ever do is all because of God's grace towards us. So we can't compare. We're simply exercising what we've been freely given by God. And when someone fails, let's get alongside them and encourage them that God has a strange way of turning even our most bitter failures into something beautiful. Remind them that there is an opportunity to grow in humility as we realize that we're not defined by either our successes or our failures, but by our identity as the child of God. Remember then, sorry, remind them that God loves to lift up those who have been humbled. And lastly, gospel humility helps us to fail well. Truly humble people can fail and not be completely devastated by that failure. Proud people allow failure to crush them because they can't bear to look weak and needy in the eyes of others. When truly humble people fail, they say to God, I've read in your words that you love to exalt the humble. How are you going to use this episode of my life to raise me up? How are you going to use this to soften me, make me more gentle and empathetic, and more dependent on you for everything I need? Speaking personally, the hardest thing that ever happened to me has simultaneously been the greatest gift I could imagine because it has driven me into the arms of my Heavenly Father time and time again to know His love in ways I simply would never have known without experiencing the pain of failure. Every single time we fall down, it's a chance for God to raise us up again. Let's let our failures fuel our worship. And as I finish, I want to speak to anyone in the room who wouldn't say they're a Christian at this point in time. And I just want to gently and as lovingly as I can urge you to respond to this message today. See, God loves you so much. And he knows that if you carry on living your life in pride, that it's a miserable existence. Always comparing yourself, always striving, never satisfied. God wants you to humble yourself before him. He wants you to fall to your knees and say, God, I need you. I need your salvation. I need to be forgiven. Thank you that you sent your one and only son to humble himself for me. Thank you that you've done all of that so that you can then exalt me, so that you can place me on the firm foundation that is Christ. I urge you to take this opportunity to do that today. And if you do, if you humble yourself before God, then God will exalt you. He'll lift you up and he'll give you a new life to live with him. One in which you learn the blessing of gospel humility. Let me pray for us.
Oh Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that even this ancient text, which (laughs) written such a long time ago, is, is so relevant right now, Lord. How relevant is you know, is this passage to us, the wrestling with pride, looking at what it looks like to be humbled, looking at what it looks like to be exalted. Thank you so much that you have this incredible way of applying the scriptures to our context, even though it looks so different to, to Babylon all those, all those many centuries ago. Thank you for every single person in this room, Lord. Thank you for your, your deep love for them. Thank you that you look at them and you see your treasured possession, Lord, that you know every hair on every head in this room. Thank you that you're our good Father. Thank you that you deal with us in, in such a loving way, Lord. And I thank you that sometimes you see fit to, to humble us through, through trials and through difficulty, Lord. And I just want to pray for anyone who's in a particularly tough season right now where they, where they really feel like they are being humbled and like they're suffering loss. And they're, yeah, just crying out why to you, Lord. I just really pray that you would strengthen them, that you would help them to see that you can use any situation for our good. And you have an, an incredible way of both humbling us and then exalting us and, and putting us in a, in a far better place than we ever would have been if we hadn't have gone through those trials. So, Yeah, if anyone's really in in the midst of that today, Lord, I pray that you would draw alongside them by your Holy Spirit. Um, And I pray for anyone who um, might be here today who doesn't know you. I really pray that that you would just be at work in their lives, helping them see who you are. Yeah, and I ask all these things in your name. Amen.